I was um, listening to the radio a few um, weeks ago, and it was a Christian channel, and uh, the, they were talking about, um, you know, unforeseen incidents that happened in the church. And uh, the radio jockey uh, mentioned that there was a church in the U.S. Uh, the worship leader apparently was gutted because their smoke machine broke down. So, well, but we don't have electricity, but we will still praise God because the church is not electricity. Praise God for that. It, it really is a, a great encouragement to, to see each one of us uh, want to give our loudest praise and glory and honor despite uh, to the Lord despite, uh, you know, the circumstances. And it just shows that God is worthy of praise uh, despite our circumstances and we will continue to praise Him as we read His Word. And we come to uh, what He has for us. If you've been reading the news uh, and watching the news or if you've not been living under a rock, you would have heard of the bombings in Paris last year. Multiple sites were bombed, uh, terrorist attacks, and uh, within a short period of time, the French government went into lockdown. France went into lockdown. France declared a state of emergency and closed all their borders. In Brussels, in March this year, there was another attack at the airport. And the Interior Homeland Ministry of Belgium went into lockdown and declared the highest level of emergency that the country had. September 9-11, uh, 2001, two planes fly into the World Trade Center. One plane just falls short of the Pentagon, or perhaps even damages the Pentagon. The U.S. State uh, Department of Homeland Security after that incident, beefs up its terrorist alert state and redefines what a code red is so that the country can be equipped to deal with a threat. Now I'm sure that I don't need to give you more examples to make the point that countries recognize threats. And countries know what to do, and they have a plan for dealing with that threat. And my question for you this morning is, what is your plan for the war that is being waged on you? What is your strategy for dealing with the threat to your life? What is the threat to your life? Peter exhorts his readers, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war upon your soul. 1 Peter 2.11 Paul exhorts the Ephesians, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand. Ephesians 6, 11 and 13. Scripture likens the Christian life and the Christian journey 
to a huge war, a series of battles in a war. Our Captain Christ has won the war, by the way, so be encouraged. But as soldiers in this army, we are constantly pitted, pitting our wits and our abilities and our life in this series of battles against temptation, against sin, against the flesh, against Satan himself perhaps. And so you need to understand as a Christian, as a blood-washed, blood-purchased believer, that you are in a war. When you are in a war, in times of war, there is no time for security or comfort. It is only a time for taking stock, for hunkering down, for being watchful, for understanding that there is an imminent threat to your life. And so as we continue our study of what Christians pursue, I'd like us to look today at the pursuit of resisting temptations. Because the war that is waged against us is a war of temptation, which is constantly trying to trip us up and make us stumble and sin. Not that we are going to lose favor with God, but we lose fellowship with Him. And as believers... We want to live lives that are pleasing to Him. We want to live lives that are in obedience to His Word. We love Him and therefore we want to live sinless lives, not that we always can. And my purpose in, in coming here is not to tell you that I somehow am, am sinless and that I've managed to conquer every temptation in my life by no means. But I want you and I want all of us to understand the immediacy and the urgency of the situation of war. I'm not over-dramatizing. I'm not sensationalizing. This is a fact that Satan is waging a war against you. And so are you equipped? Are you even aware to be equipped? And how can you be equipped? Are we going to look at a portion of scripture which shows us this from our Lord himself? So if you wouldn't mind turning to the gospel of Matthew, to Matthew's account of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And we want to see and identify what these temptations actually were. And we want to understand and identify them so that when they come into our lives or some variation of it comes into our lives, we can recognize it, we can recognize the threat, we can raise the alarm in our own lives, and we can take precautionary, preventative measures. And whilst these are just three temptations, as we will see, I believe that they, they are categories of temptation, they are categories that we need to be aware of, because pretty much... I'm not saying every sin will fall into these categories, but pretty much this covers a lot of the temptations that you and I and all of us face. So let's look into the Word of God, and please give your complete attention to the reading of the inerrant and infallible Word of God. Matthew 4, 1-11 Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. 
But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will bear, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to, the, to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. May God bless the reading of his word, and may the purpose for which it has been sent forth not return void. Shall we pray and come at this time to the Lord? Our gracious God, we just want to thank you that you are our captain, and in this war against sin that you have won, you have defeated the enemy, but he is not dead yet. And Father, we just pray that as we study the scripture and understand what the temptations are, that you will help us to identify how they apply to our lives, to the secret sins that we have. The struggles, Lord, that we are challenged by. And Father, we pray that you would speak into our hearts as only you can through your spirit and by the power of your word to give us strength, to illuminate our hearts, to help us to recognize where we are stumbling and when we are stumbling, Lord, so that we may stand firm against the ploys of the devil and bring you glory and live for your honor. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's the context here? What's going on? What's the, what's the background story? What's the big picture? If you turn just a few verses in the previous chapter in 3.13... You will read, then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. And verse 16 says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased and immediately after that, we have our text today, and then Jesus was led up into this, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So understand what Matthew is trying to do. Matthew's whole focus is to try to get you to understand, that, or get his readers to understand, that Jesus is the King. Jesus is the King. And so, through the baptism, he is trying to communicate the fact that the favor of God rests on Jesus. Jesus has divine approval. And now through the temptation episode, he's trying to show us Jesus has divine power. And now he's trying to say, he is the king, so listen to him, because not only does he have divine approval, he has the power to help you in your temptations, because he has conquered the devil. And as Hebrews uh, 2.18 sums it up, For since he, wa- he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. 
So now we come to the first temptation. And this is why we look to Jesus. Because he has done what no man could do. The, the, the first Adam fails in the garden of perfection. The second Adam triumphs in the wilderness. The first Adam is, is, is perfect and yet he falls. But the son of God, the second Adam, makes up for his flaws. It shows how to really do it. Israel wanders for 40 years in the wilderness, moaning, complaining, whinging. But the Lord, in the 40 days, is completely submitted to the will of God. And so, he is not only the perfect man, he is the savior of Israel, he is the king, the redeemer, who is going to bring salvation and do what is necessary for his people. And that is why we look to him, and so we come to the first temptation. Verses 2 to 4. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, some of you might have, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If we look at Satan's uh, words over here, we might actually think that he's got a point. You're the son of God, right, Jesus? I mean, come on. You've been 40 days. You're hungry. You're almost going to die. You're at the point of starvation. Make some bread. What's wrong with making bread? He's not asking him to make a lamb roast. He's just asking him to make bread. So if we just go simply by Satan's words... We, we will never understand what the real temptation is because he is the master deceiver. He is so subtle and so sophisticated in his lies that we, some, we, we would be tempted to think that they are actually virtuous. But Jesus is onto him in a flash and it is only when we understand the response of Jesus that we can begin to understand what the actual temptation is in the first place. You're the Messiah. What good is a dead Messiah? Command these stones to, to become bread and eat. You deserve it. Sounds very legitimate. But Jesus tells us what's wrong with that. Satan wants Jesus to stop relying on the provision of his father and start relying to, on him to provide for himself. Why wait for the Father to do what you can do? Why wait for His time when you can have what you need right now? Why don't you just tweak His will a bit? You're not changing the whole thing. How does it, don't, how does it matter if you don't obey His whole word? Just change a bit. Because you're going to die. God doesn't want you to die. The temptation is about self-reliance. Depending on your own ability, depending on your own sense of timing, depending on your ability to provide for yourself in a time of a crunch, because God doesn't seem to be there. Trust yourself. Listen to your body. Listen to your heart. How many times have you heard that on the, on the radio? 
Assert your rights. Feed your flesh. Do what you need to get done. Jesus' response is profound. It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. We need to understand this. We need to so understand this. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 4. Remember how the Lord your God fed you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know that in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither of you nor your ancestors had known. Why did God do that, Moses? To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if you had any doubt about the power of God's word, remember, verse 4, your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Let's understand at the very beginning, never make the mistake that you are alive because you eat well and you sleep well and you drink well and you have a Fitbit. Never make that mistake that you somehow are doing what's required and that's what's keeping you alive. Exercise is good, it's profitable. Eating well is profitable, it is wise. But man does not live on bread alone. Why are these, why are these words so important? Why, why, why are words more important than bread? Why are words more nourishing than bread? Because by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Because he upholds things by the word of his power. The word of God is vital because it is active and living. This is no ordinary word. This is not the word that you and I speak. This is not even the word that I am speaking now. What word is this? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. You cannot separate God from his word. You can't say, oh, I love God, but I don't care too much for his word. It doesn't work. God is inseparable. God and his word are one. It is the living word. God's word is everything and that's what Jesus is saying. It is, if, if, it is his, if it is his will that I eat, then I eat. If it is his will that I starve, then I starve. If it is his will that I live, I live. If it is his will that I die, then I die. I will eat when it is, when it is his time, when it is his provision, when it is his will, that's when I eat. Why? Why so much adherence to the Father? Because my food is to do the will of Him who sent me. John 4.34 I will not command these stones to become bread, because the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served. 
I'm not here to indulge my personal needs, but to meet the needs of others. And that is why Satan, I'm not going to command these stones to become bread. Do you see how clear Jesus is about his father's will? Do you see how in complete alignment he has, has, he has formed his life to living in accordance with this will? I can starve, it doesn't matter. Because food is not, is, is not what's keeping me alive. Do you see how powerful the temptation for self-reliance is? That's something all of us can identify with. But you need to understand that as a believer, no matter how powerful this attraction is, you have personal experience of a much greater power. Because it was the power of the word which you read, which you heard, that brought you back to life. How did that happen? By human might? By human wisdom? No, James says, he brought us forth, how? By the, by the word of truth. James 1.18. Peter puts it like this. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. What in the world is that, Peter? The living and enduring word of God. 1 Peter 1.23. Do you know what a big deal that is? Do you know what a big deal it is to be dead and then to come to life? I mean, think about it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, because of His great love, made you alive in Christ. Amen. You heard the word, you read the word, the lights came on, and you're free. This is, the word brings life. Lazarus, come forth! man comes out of the grave by himself he goes to see his mates hey Lazarus where you been in the tomb yeah what are you doing there oh, I was dead really yeah I was dead three days I was stinking but God made me come alive the word is life the word brings healing Lord you don't have to come to my house if you just say the word, my servant is going to be healed. The word is spoken, the servant is healed. This is the word. This is why the word is a big deal. This is why man does not live by bread alone, but by this word. That proceeds from the mouth of God. And when you know this life-giving power, when you have experienced it for yourself, when you have seen how this word has caused you to turn from sin, when you have seen how this word has transformed your life, when people around you say, hey man, you're not the same anymore, then you know the power of the word, and you know that it is greater than any attraction for the physical flesh. Then you know when, when your body says, hey, you've got to, uh, you, you, you need this, you need this now, you need this, you need this or you're going to die. 
Your leader says, you're going to lose your mind. Or at work, hey man, if you don't bend the rules, you're going to lose your job. Or the government says, hey, if you don't affirm same-sex marriage, you're going to lose your license as a church. Or your family says, hey, you know, if you don't follow the family tradition, we're going to cut you off. Basically, whenever there's any circumstance which threatens your physical well-being, you know, and you can say, I am not alive because of that. I am alive because of the word of God. And Paul says, what does he say? My God will supply some of your needs, maybe. My God will supply all your needs, not according to what your need is, according to his riches in glory. Your emotional needs, your financial needs, your relational needs, your sexual needs, your whatever needs, intellectual, mental, whatever. Every category. So when, so when, when you are confronted by a deep and legitimate, hunger is a legitimate thing, right? Thirst is a legitimate thing. Safety is legitimate. But when you are confronted by a threat... To your own personal well-being, how do you respond? Do you respond on self-reliance? Or do you respond and say, I'm not alive because of this physical need. I'm alive because of the word that comes from the mouth of God. Temptation number two. Verses 5 to 7. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The first temptation was to practice self-reliance. Why trust God to provide for your needs when you are fully capable of taking care of yourself? The second temptation now, Jesus says, the first temptation, Jesus says, no, I'm going to rely on the provision of God. Satan says, yeah. You want to play the it is written game? It is written. If you fall down, He's going to send his angels to pick you up. Let's two, two of us can play that game. The first temptation is to rely on yourself. The second temptation is forcing God to provide for you. Forcing God's hand. Where's Satan going with this? What's he really getting at? What, what, what's the carrot he's dangling? Over here. What's his strategy? Well, let's understand what the context of his temptation is in Psalm 91. If you wouldn't mind turning there, we'll understand where this verse is taken from. And so we can understand whether God is really saying, no matter what you do and no matter if you throw yourself off a cliff, I'm going to send my angels to protect you. Is God really saying that? So if, you ha- if you're in Psalm 91, I'm reading from verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. 
I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, for you have made the Lord, you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. And then comes the verse which Satan quotes. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. <coughs> Clearly, the context is one of provision and protection for God's people. So who is the you? He will guard, he send his angels concerning you. Who is the you in Psalm 91? Very clear in verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Almighty. The psalmist is talking about someone who takes refuge in God. There is disease around him, the, snap, the people are laying traps for him, people are falling by his wayside, there's arrows flying all around, and he's running away and taking refuge behind the shield of God's faithfulness. He's running into the castle of God. He's running into the fortress and saying, I can't deal with this myself. There's so much rubbish happening around me. Save me. It's very clear. But please note that this person who takes refuge in God, he's not running towards the arrows. He's not taking up the disease and rubbing it all over his body. He's not running into the snare. He's running away from it. And what is Satan telling God to do? He's saying, go into it. Put yourself at risk. Is that what the psalmist is saying? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, he's not taking any risks. He's running away from them. And Satan is saying the exact opposite. Put yourself in harm's way. Why is he saying that? Jump off. Go on. God's going to save you. Why? Because if he jumps off and the angels come and lift him up and lay him down, what are the people going to think? Wow! Here's the Messiah. He's come. Malachi 3, 1 says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. You jump off the cliff, you're saved and wow, you're done. People are going to love you. They're going to lap it up. They're going to see that you're the Messiah. No need for the cross. No need for the suffering. You're set. Is that why Jesus came? 
Is that what the will of the Father? Satan is suggesting to Jesus, it's okay to twist God's word a bit. It's okay to sort of twist his arm a bit to get him to do what you want. It's okay to blackmail him a bit. It's emotional blackmail. He's your father. We do it all the time. What's the underlying temptation? And Jesus' response is, Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What is this temptation? What is putting God to the test? What does that mean? It means getting God to prove himself to you, getting God to prove his character to you, and it's an allusion to Exodus 7 where it says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? How had Israel tested the Lord? It's not enough for them that they've just witnessed ten plagues that has destroyed Egypt. It's not enough for them that God has parted the Red Sea for them to walk through and destroy the Egyptian army. It's not enough for them to see that there is a pillar of cloud to lead them by day and a pillar of fire to lead them at night. No, they're saying, God, if we are thirsty, you've got to do something about it. Although what, what kind of God leaves his people thirsty? Are you God? If you are God, why are we thirsty? That doesn't even make sense. What kind of God leaves his people thirsty? What kind of God leaves his people in the, in the wilderness to die? Exodus 17.7 says that Moses named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Deuteronomy 6.16 says the same thing. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Why is this a sin? It is a sin because we try and elevate ourselves to a position of authority where we say, God, I will believe in you but on my terms. I've set up the hoops, jump through them, show me what you can do. You want me to believe in you? You've got to take my boxes. When we test God, anyone who tests anyone is in a higher position, is in a higher position of authority. When you go and give your driving test, the SA, whatever, the, the driving guys are in a position of a high, a high authority. They validate your ability. If you are testing God, you are trying to validate God's authority. You are no one to do that. Lord, if the, if the phone rings in 30 seconds, I'll know it was you. Lord, if I get a promotion, uh, I know you want me to give more to the church. Lord, if you do X, I'll do Y. Help me help you. Let's collaborate. Just do this for me and I'm your guy. Do you... It sounds like we're really keen to do God's will, doesn't it? I, I want to do this for you, Lord. I really want to do this. 
But what we're actually trying to do is place conditions within which God has to act. We're placing God in a box and saying, this is your area of operation. Now do what I'm asking you to do. Do you see how arrogant and presumptuous that is? Do you see how we play fast and loose with God's word and hold him to promises that he never made? I can do all things to Christ. So I'm going to get into this relationship with a person that does not know God, but I can do anything. God works all things for those who love him. So I'm going to sell my house and start a business that I have no idea what I'm doing. Be bold and be strong for the Lord your God is with you. So I'm going to give up my job and follow my dreams as an artist. Lord, actually, you know, I, I, was, I was driving and I didn't have my rego up to date. And I got caught in the camera and it's costing me 400 bucks. You said ask anything in my name, right? Can you sort of make that disappear? We'll split it. I'll give half to the church and I'll keep half. Do you see how selfish these requests are? You're not really wanting to do it for the Lord, are you? Lord, if you do this, I'll do this. Actually, you're asking the Lord for yourself. Don't get me wrong. God wants us to be bold. God wants us to be courageous. God wants us to take risks. But not for our own glory. For His glory. Not for our betterment. But for His kingdom. Not so that we would be in the spotlight. But so that the glory would be to His name. We test God when we place demands on Him in order to meet our own needs. In order for our will to be done. Are you testing God in any area of your life? Are you holding God to ransom with your demands? Don't be foolish. Realize who you are. Realize who God is. Humble yourself And he will lift you up. Moving on to the last temptation. Verses 8 to 10. By the way, I could go over because I can't see the time there. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. The first temptation, Satan says, you can make this happen. You can do it. Second temptation, Satan says, force God to make it happen. Third temptation, he says, I have a better idea. I can make it happen. Have you been in a position like that? But you said, no, no, Lord, you know, I I, I want to rely on you. And you said, no, Lord, I'm not going to presume on you. You do what you have to do. And then Satan comes and says, oh, I can do that. What can he make happen for Jesus? 
Listen to Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. It's a psalm of the Lord's, of the Lord's anointed. The, the, the word anointed in the Hebrew is Mashiach, or Messiah. So it's the psalm of the Messiah, the psalm of the Lord's Messiah. And in this psalm it's very clear that God's will is for his Messiah to own and to have rulership over all the nations of the world. It is God's plan and God's intention for Christ to have the inheritance of the nations. Satan says, you want it? You can have it. I can make it happen. Look at all these. He chose them all the kingdoms of the world and the glory. Just bow down. To me. The first time he was subtle. The second time he was subtle. But now he shows his true colors. He shows what he really wants. Isn't that what Satan always wants? He wants the glory. He wants the worship. He hates for God to be glorified. The temptation is clear. You can achieve God's plan. But you need to follow Satan's process. You can be true to God's intentions. You just need to rely on Satan's provision. You can follow God's will. Just follow Satan's way. He tries to make it look as if he's actually helping to achieve God's purpose for your life. Look, God wants you to have this anyway, right? I'm not making this up. God wants you to have it. He wants you to have the inheritance of the nations. I can give it to you. Can he? Yes. He is the authority for a limited time. But let's understand one thing. He has authority only over unbelievers. He does not have authority over believers. Why? Because God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Colossians 1.30 Believers are not under the authority of Satan. That's why He has to tempt us to worship Him. Because unbelievers are worshipping Him anyway. They don't have to be tempted. Worship Satan to achieve God's plan for your your life. You You want a more effective ministry? You want more people to come to your church? You want your best life now? Just bow down. Bow the knee. No one's going to see. It's just between you and me. Who's going to see? Who's going to know? There's only one response. Be gone, Satan. Leave. Yahweh alone is worthy of true worship. You might think that's an easy thing to do. You might think, oh, you know, I could do that. But when you see the glory that Satan can actually give you, it is very hard to say no. How can you say no? 
when you determine in your heart, as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. When you love God for who He is and not for what He can give you. So as we can see, the the progression of the temptations go from self-reliance. You can do it. To self-conceit. Test God to see if He can do it. To Satan worship. Relax. I got this. I can do it. I'm I'm not suggesting that these are the only ways to look at it. You may have your own ways and your own categories of these temptations. But I think what these temptations show us is a progression. If we start relying on ourselves, if we give in to the temptation that we can do it, and then we give in to the temptation to put God to the test, we will soon be confronted with the temptation to worship Satan. Are the alarm bells going off in your head? This, I don't know, this, this is not a code red. This is something far higher. This is a state of emergency that you need to declare in your mind because your mind is the battlefield. This is where the war is going to be fought and won. So as we wrap up, I just want to give us seven principles that we can take that we can learn from Christ. I'm going to go real quickly. Number one. Keep God first. Be satisfied with Him. John Piper has a very interesting definition of sin. He says, sin is what we do when we are not satisfied with God. Sin is what we do when we are not satisfied with God. We are not satisfied with His provision, so we seek to provide for ourselves. We are not satisfied with His word, so we want Him to do some supernatural thing in order to prove Himself to us. We are not satisfied with His means, so we look to Satan to provide what He has promised. How can we have, how can we resist sin? Is if we continue being satisfied. If only He can make us truly happy. If we recognize that there is no fulfillment to be had in anything or anyone but Christ. Number two, believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of God's word. Believe in the inerrancy, that means it has no mistake, and the infallibility, which means it is incapable of making a mistake. When Jesus says it is written, what does that mean? What is he saying? He's saying God has spoken. Moses has recorded what God has spoken and he has recorded it correctly, accurately. He has not made this up by his own mind. It is written means 
God has spoken. And if, if it's, there's about a 1500 year gap between Moses and Jesus, and Jesus considers the scriptures to be utterly inerrant. And if Jesus can believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures recorded 1500 years before him, why is it difficult for us to believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures 2000 years after? You must understand that this is the weapon, the scripture is the sword, the two-edged sword that causes Satan the most grief, that is causes Satan the most harm, and therefore he is all out to attack its veracity. And when you say, oh, I don't know, yeah, maybe the Bible has mistakes, oh, I don't know, oh, oh, really, it doesn't have mistakes, oh, yeah, I, I, oh, ooh, ooh, and suddenly the, the sword becomes blunt. You cannot fight the good fight without the good sword. Your ability to resist temptation depends on how highly you place scripture in your life. If you have a low view of scripture, you are not going to succeed. Because this is the word of God and there is nothing more powerful than it in the universe. It is not human intellect and human philosophy that can help you fight temptation. It is the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Yeah. <clears throat> Number three. Believe in the sufficiency of God's revealed word. Jesus could have said... You know, um, Satan, I think I'm going to bring in rule number 32. Hey, that doesn't exist. No, I'm bringing it in now. And he creates new scripture and he says, okay, because of such and such, therefore your, your temptation is invalid. No. Jesus relies on the scripture that has already been revealed and that is enough for him. He doesn't need any new revelation to counter Satan's temptation. It is, scripture is enough. Why? Because it is the word of God. If the word of God is not enough for you, what's going to be enough? If the sufficiency of scripture was good enough for the son of God, should it not be sufficient for us? Number four, be sound in doctrine. <coughs> I could say this so many different ways. Satan shows us the wrong way to read scripture. Jesus shows us the right way to read scripture. Which means that there is a possibility that you could be reading scripture the wrong way. What is Paul's command to Timothy? Timothy, rightly divide the word of God. Rightly divide. What does that mean? Cut it up. Dissect it. Unpack it. But do it right. Because there is a wrong way. There is a wrong way to read scripture. There is a wrong way that could lead to destruction. There is a wrong way that can lead to temptation. There is a wrong way that leads down to the path of condemnation. 
And so you have people which says, Oh no, I don't like doctrine. Oh, I just want to love Jesus because you know, doctrine divides. And Jesus shows us actually that doctrine defends. You have no defense without sound doctrine. Whether you are a housewife, whether you are a child, whether you are a teenager, whether you are a stay-at-home mom, whether, whatever you do, have sound doctrine. It is vital. Because if you do not know the right way to interpret scripture, you are in danger. I see so many people on Twitter or Facebook and you've got a nice picture there with a nice verse, but that person is a heretic. What does this incident teach us? It teaches us that just because someone is quoting scripture does not mean that they have to be followed because even Satan knows scripture. Follow someone who knows doctrine. Follow someone who knows sound doctrine. Number five. Trust God, not yourself. Sounds logical. But so hard to do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. We usually stop there, which, which is good. I mean, it says all it needs to say, but look at what it says after. Do, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Why? It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Can you just let that sink in? <coughs> Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the Lord's way. What is Satan's way? Let me read to you Satan's way from Isaiah 14. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's Satan's way. I can do it. I'm smart enough. And that's what he will tempt you with. You're smart enough. You've got this. The temptation is to be to, to make you think that you're cleverer than you are. It's such... I mean, I think the human intellect is one of those things where we hate to be considered dumb. That's such a dumb thing to do. You're stupid. You're an idiot. You follow Christ, you're an idiot. You're going to lose your life for that, you're an idiot. You're going to say that the whole world is wrong and you're right and only Jesus is the only way. You're a fool. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Do not be wise in your own eyes and it will be a refreshment to your bones. It will get into you. 
Number six, watch and pray. Know that you are in a war. Know that it is a state of emergency. Know that Satan wants to go for the jugular. Know that he is not going to take any prisoners. Keep a watchful eye over your life. Keep a watchful eye over your family. Keep a watchful eye over your forever family. Hold them to account. Ask them to hold you to account. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your family. Pray for your friends. Pray without ceasing. What does Jesus say? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. It's the key. How often do you pray? How's your prayer life? Keep watching and praying so that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit is very willing. The spirit wants to do the right thing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus was tempted at the high point. He's been baptized. The spirit comes down. Voice comes. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. He's tempted at the high point in our lives and so are we. We're, we're tempted when we're on a high. When things are going fine. What does Paul say? Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed. Why? Lest he fall. The temptation comes in Jesus' time when he's in a point of physical weakness and temptation will come to us when we are at a low in our lives. Has God left you? Is God really there? Is he listening? Watch and pray. Lastly, be encouraged. Be encouraged. You know, some, some people might say, this is Jesus. You know, he's the son of God. Come on. He can do anything. I mean, was that even a temptation? Can God be tempted? So why is this a temptation? Why is it a big deal for Jesus? Let's look at it this way. Do you get tempted? Yes, you do. Do you give in to every temptation? Hopefully not. But just because you overcome a temptation, does it make the temptation any less powerful? No. It's still real. And so yes, Jesus was God in human flesh. He couldn't be tempted. But the fact was that the temptation was very, very, very real. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, yet without sin. Therefore, what should, that, what should we do? Let us then draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Be encouraged. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, so that, you may, so that in me you may have peace in the world. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Shall we pray? 
Our gracious God and loving Father, we just want to thank you for Jesus Christ who has shown us the way that sin and temptation can be overcome. We thank you that he led the perfect life, sinless life, to show us what a true human being looks like. We thank you, Lord, that there is no one else outside of him who can show us the way to the Father, because only he was the sinless Lamb of God. Only he was the one who was offered as the propitiation for our sins. Only he rose again, triumphing over the grave, freeing us from the bondage of sin and death and Satan, so that we no longer have to be slaves to his lies. We thank you. We bless you. And we ask that you would help us to be watchful. Help us to recognize that we are at war. And help us to recognize the victory that Christ, our captain, has won. And so, as we live from day to day, give us victory over every battle that we need to fight ourselves. <coughs> help us not to fight it in the flesh, but help us to fight the good fight of faith. Lord, so that when we stand before you, you would tell us, well done, good and faithful servant. We ask this for your glory, for your, for your name's sake. And in the name of your holy and beloved Son. Amen.